Hello? Hey, Striker. Who's this? It's Christo and Gavin. I think I made a wrong turn. There's a crazy guy out here wearing nothing but fur boots and a gas mask, and he's holding a machete. <laughs> I, th- oh, I think I made a wrong... T- oh, is that my dad? Wait, what street do you... I'll be there in like 10 minutes. <laughs> please, please be careful getting here. I can't wait to see you. I got a lot of fun planned, okay? Okay, cool. Dad, what are you doing? <laughs> see you later. Be careful. <laughs> Your name is Stryker? Yes, it is. That's fire. <laughs> wow. I love sandwiches. It's called tuna on toast. I, I, I spit... I don't know what I'm doing. I love music and I love those that created Strikers here. Tuna on toast. Yes. Tuna on toast. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to another episode. Today, well, all of them are good. This one is really, really good with Bad Sons. And we are brought to you by Hamer Toyota out there in Mission Hills here in Southern California. I've gotten 47 cars from them over the last nine years. Actually, I'm not sure the amount, but they're the absolute best. Uh, during the Rams 49ers game, and as I am doing this intro right now here in the Tuna on Toast studio, a.k.a. my second bedroom, it's been less than 24 hours since the game ended. I must have texted Johnny, the general sales manager, I don't know, 27 times right after the game. He loves Matthew Stafford because Johnny is a Detroit Lions fan. <laughs> and now this dude's first year on the Rams, he goes to the Super Bowl, which means the Detroit Lions organization stinks because they don't know what they're doing. Going to get a car at Hammer, whether you're getting a new car or a used car, they make you feel comfortable and they treat you like a rock star. And I appreciate that you support the company that supports me. Hammer Toyota, H-A-M-E-R, HammerToyota.com. All right, bad sons. Many reasons why you do love them and should love them. They are under 30 years old. They are from Southern California, and they just released their fourth studio album. Do you know how impressive that is? And I'm not talking about, oh, let's just put out an album. Uh, No, these are all great albums, and they have built up a fan base. And we discussed this uh, in The Hang. It is Gavin and Christo. They came over to the house and I should point out this as well. When you have a moment, go to the YouTube channel that I have, Tune on Toast with Striker, and check out the intro of them walking in the house. I had to go to the other room for a minute. They fed my dog, and then we played a game on my sofa, and they did incredible. That's the YouTube show. Tune on Toast is a YouTube show, and it's also for your audio consumption. But Gavin and Christo and the four guys in Bad Sons, they're a great band. They're so talented, and I don't have to tell you this, but I'm going to anyways. It is tough to keep people interested year after year after year, and they've done it. And we discussed this in the chat. There's a lot of bands that came out when Bad Sons did. Maybe some did better than them that first year, second year, or third year. Many of those bands, they're gone. You don't know where they are. What are Bad Sons doing? They're on tour, doing a kick-ass tour. They also just played with Angels and Airwaves. They have a lot of cool things to say, some insight on Tom DeLonge. So let's get to it. Oh, by the way, the new album is called Apocalypse Whenever. You should also go to YouTube and watch their infomercial that was filmed because there's a guy named Ted Stryker who is a big part of the infomercial for Apocalypse Whenever, the new Bad Sons album. So without any further ado, here they are. Welcome to the Tuna on Toast studio. It is Christo and Gavin from Bad Sons. Test one, two, uh, Bad Sons. All right, 
Watch your head and your feet coming in. I'll be here. Uh, welcome. This is my spare bedroom. Oh. Amazing. <laughs> I like what you've done with the place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who's that with you behind? Is that Jack White? Yes. Yeah. But it looks like the... Um, yeah, were you guys in court together? He wouldn't allow photographers. Okay. So we got a courtroom sketch artist. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> It looks like Richard Ramirez, the serial killer. Wow. Oh, wow. Doesn't it? Does. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's, is that Night Stalker? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Crazy uh, documentary. Who signed the clock? Oh, the clock on the wall right there. Oh, Flavor Flav signed the clock. Wow. <laughs> Did he walk in with it around his neck? He, it's too bad. No, I bought, I, I knew he was going to be a guest <laughs> the other place, so I bought the clock and brought it in. Yeah. That's amazing. Wait, was he on Surreal Life? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yes. Nielsen. Right. Did they get married? I think they did. They built an empire with that show, for sure. I missed that show. Those are the good old... That was VH1, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Wait, what was the name of the show? Flavor of Love. But then... Wait. Oh, Flavor of Love. Oh, they made a show Right. Afterwards. Flavor Wait. of Love with I Love New York on it. Yes. That was season two. I just recently watched an interview of Flavor Flav where he was going through all of that stuff, so... That uh, was a spinoff from Surreal Life, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. That's the other one I really like. It was a spinoff of I Love New York. Rock of Love? No, it wasn't Rock of Love. It was... Charm School? It might have been Real Chance at Oh, Love. Real Chance with Real and Chance. Yeah. Mm, I loved that yeah, show. Yeah, I love that show, too. God. <laughs> Do you guys watch Below Deck? No. Great. Is it like uh, fishing? It's Lobster not trapping? fishing. It's this... Very fancy yacht goes to sea for three days. There's new guests every week, oh. but the focus is the crew. Okay. There's like the chief stewardess and then the assistants and then the people who are in charge of putting the jet skis out. And there's five of them and they're good looking and they Wait. force alcohol on them on their days off. It's are, the, are the crew looking for love or it's just no, about there's them? No, there's it's no just love. Reality. But it's a good reality okay. show. It, I'm, I'm so locked into this terrible show. No, I don't blame you. I'm a big reality TV guy. So, what's your favorite one? Uh, that's a rough question because I don't think I have a favorite one. But I have a hard time watching regular shows; just can't commit for some reason. So, I like Million Dollar Listing. I think I that's, love Million Dollar. That's Listing. my favorite reality show for sure. <laughs> I'm watching all seasons. New York. So, who Los do you Angeles. like? Josh Flag, Josh Altman, the, um, the guys Ryan Serhan, the New York guys, okay. the Silver Fox. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Love him. Okay. Uh, Frederick. Oh, yeah. I'm very confused by something. Yeah. Christo. Okay. We were all together for many hours recently, mm -hmm. and there was a gentleman there named Brian. He was calling you Chris the entire time. In my past hangouts with you, all professional, I say Christo. So what the hell am I supposed to say? And we can you can pass on this answer if you want. No, it's, it's a good question. Um, it used to be that, well, my name is Christopher. So Chris, Chris has been my nickname for a long time, but when our guitar player Ray joined our band 10 years ago now, um, he would just, just, he started calling me Christo, just like, okay. and eventually it stuck. And I just thought my name was so boring. Just Chris Bowman. <laughs> it looked a little too much like Chris Brown. When you kind of squinted your eyes, I was like, Christo just felt a little bit more interesting. There's a, one of the guys named Daft Punk's home, last name is Homin Christo or something. I was like, that sounds cooler. So it just kind of stuck. And it used to be a thing that if you were my friend, you called me Chris. And if you knew me from the band, you called me Christo. But now so many years have passed that my friends call me Christo. And it's, you know, whatever. I'm cool with all of it. 
Okay, what is it called? What's the word when someone is super fancy and they, they think, oh, God. it's the opposite of that, Christo. I thought it was going to go, please call me Christo at all times. It's a freaking nickname. That's mm-hmm. it. That's it. Wow, okay. Yeah. I like that. Sophisticated nickname. <laughs> How long have you guys known each other, you two? Oh, God. Um, we met in 2006. Yeah, it's been yeah. just over 15, 16 years. We met the first day of seventh grade. So let's just let that sink in for a while for those of you listening and watching the show today. You're under 30 years old, right? Yes. Yes. And you have four full-length albums out. That is a huge achievement with an incredible fan base, and you've built this thing up, and they stick with you. 15 years ago, or however many years ago, what was the plan for you either personally or professionally, Christo? We, I think we wanted to do this. I feel like since a very young age, we've kind of been just on the path of getting here somehow. It all started actually with a band who you have their plaque on the wall. It started with Blink-182. The first thing that Gavin said to me in the first day of science class, uh, he was sitting behind me and he was like, I, heard, oh, I saw your MySpace. And I was like, oh yeah. And because of my my, you know, you can make your own profile and like HTML and all that stuff. So mine was all decked out in like Blink-182 regalia. His background was Atticus, the bird oh, right. tiled on the whole thing. Yeah. And I saw that and being 12, I was like, wow, that's cool. And I think he had a, he was playing guitar in his profile picture. Oh yeah, it was. You were playing guitar in your profile at 12 years old. Yeah. You knew about Blink-182, you were playing guitar. It's just so, you guys are just so mature musically, and as humans, it's almost hard for me to wrap my head around well, how advanced you are at the age you are at. Mm, thank you. Yeah, you we know, try. We, we try, and we just fell in love with music. And I think seeing, like the reason why I think uh, Blink appealed to us so much, especially when we were younger, was the music was incredible, first of all. The videos were hilarious. It was just all of this, they looked cool. And like if you watched interviews or saw their Tour, tour footage or any of that stuff, it just looked like they were having the most fun in the entire world. And the idea of playing music with your best friends, traveling, playing in front of people, it just, it, I, right away I was like, what could possibly be better than that? And so we kind of just went looking for it. And, sure. you know, so to be here now, all those years later, and we get to, you know, travel the world and play music and be with our best friends, it's like, it feels pretty amazing. Kudos on everything you have accomplished so far. What My brain goes to the following, and Gavin, I'll go to you on this. Mm-hmm. There's a zillion people who at 15 years old want to be a pro athlete or a musician, and for a variety of reasons, it doesn't happen. But one of them is from like the 15 to 22-year-old uh, part of their life, eh, maybe they're putting 40% into the profession. Mm-hmm. Like, h- how was your brain ticking at that time to know that if we're going to do this, we actually have to put some hard work into this. No one's going to hand us anything here. Well, I think Chris and I started playing together when I think I, we were both 15. And so leading up to like out of high school, we were already playing shows like all over the place. Wow. And it was only, I think it was less than a year from when the two of us graduated high school to where we technically got a record deal or anything, you know. But we had already been like, we were rehearsing like several times a week, every week up until that point. So we were already putting in the work as like, I know, band members in a band and playing all over the place to five people and stuff like that. So it seemed like it was a really slow build. It seemed really natural for us to kind of transition into like, the reality of being a working musician out of that, you know? There were a few things, because I remember, like we were, like he said, we were playing shows after school. Like, I remember your mom would get really bummed. We'd come home super late, and uh, it wasn't cool. 
And we, we found ourselves to a certain point where we knew kind of the impossibility of what we wanted to do. Like, I remember my parents would always tell me, like, there's a one in, like, a million chance that you that you could do this. And I was like, oh, I don't like those odds. So <laughs> just did all that we could to, like, really, like, knowing that in the back of my head. And then I remember, too, when we graduating high school, we were kind of like, okay, well, we're going to take the year off. We're not going to go to college. Like, if we don't make this, if we can't make something work in the next year, then, you know, we'll get we'll get a real job, we'll go to college, we'll do all oh. that stuff. And we just really didn't want to do that. So we lucked out and we like, we just before that year was up, we signed a record deal, which, which was surreal. I remember actually when we released the song Cardiac Arrest, we were driving to do a callback uh, to work at the American Apparel store in the, in the Topanga Mall. <laughs> yep. Come on. I didn't get a callback, Chris did though. I, I didn't look good enough. <laughs> Well, they were going to put me in the back of the. They were. I was. In, I was going to be in the back doing backstock. I was like, I don't even want to do this. Um, and so we decided not to go. We just released that song, fingers crossed. And then, like a few weeks later, they were playing it on K Rock. Cat Corbett picked on the it up. locals only show. Yeah, mm-hmm. on Sunday nights. Yeah. yeah, and that kind of changed our lives overnight. You were going to get this job. Yeah, the song starts to get some traction. You're like, we're done with the job. I interviewed this artist named Jason Mraz years ago, Mm -hmm. and he was talking about how much time he was going to give himself before he's like, I'm going to throw in the towel and uh, get a real job. You said you were going to give yourselves a year at 18, 17, 18 years old. He said he was giving himself 10. Wow. wow. He's like, I'm going 10 years at this. And then if it, if it doesn't happen, do you ever think about now, like how lucky you are that something (laughs) did happen at that year? Because it sounds like you are actually going to go to school or move on with something if it didn't. Yeah, I think we're incredibly lucky. Like, that, the odds of that happening are, like, you know, like he was saying, 1%. And I think we would have continued to be in a band if all of us ended up going to college after that year. And it would have been way different. But we would have kept working at it. So I think the year was just to, like, do nothing. And to, like, I mean, I don't think any of us put a time on how long we would try to be musicians it was just kind of like, if we're not any step closer to like, you know, being, uh, you know, professional, professional musicians, musicians yeah. within that year span, then like my mom's not going to let me just chill at home and not have a job and, you know, rehearse several times a week for nothing. So, so. how did it go down when you got a record deal at that time? Did you have to, you were playing these shows. Did someone see you? Did someone get a, a demo? How did that happen? So a lot of things started with uh, us meeting our producer, Eric Palmquist. So it's a funny story. My parents are both flight attendants. And so, my, you know, my mom, she's super proud. And one day she was just talking to her, one of her other flight attendant friends in like the galley. And uh, this guy overheard her conversation. They're talking about my music or whatever. And this guy walks up. Is this guy Todd from Interscope Records? And he's like, I heard you talking about your son's band. I'm really curious. And so she gave him... A demo CD, because of course she had them on hand at all times. Wow! And peanuts, peanuts, demo, demo, yeah, peanuts. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and so then he gave that CD to a guy named Tim Boris in Santa Barbara, who was an attorney who represented us for a while. And then he, from Santa Barbara, knew this guy, Eric Palmquist, and he passed our music along to him. And so then all these kind of dominoes were falling, and eventually we started working with Eric, and uh, he really believed in the band. And so we didn't have... A record company we didn't have management we just had these songs and we started working these like kind of odd gigs i remember like we were in like a volkswagen commercial as like a the band in a garage and like we kind of found these weird ways to make some money and get in the studio with him and so we were 17 and we recorded like the third of the first record the red one right there like cardiac arrest we moved like the ocean matthew james 
uh, transpose. And so we recorded those songs. Eventually, Cardiac Arrest came out. And then, yeah, once once K-Rock picked it up, we dropped uh, our, our, our drummer had a genius idea. We went and dropped off the CD at the K-Rock like mailbox. And they started playing it. And then the next thing we knew, we were just getting phone calls and emails from all these types of people in the industry like we didn't believe it yeah, it was pretty crazy because it was like the next day after the first night that they played us like our email starts blowing up which i feel like is very very surprising when i look back at it because that's a lot of people for some reason listening to locals only on that sunday that were interested in what we were doing and a lot of people listen to locals only and i hope you guys understand how good you are because a lot of people there was so much music coming in and when you dropped yours off, kudos to Cat who took the time to listen and every to listen to yeah. everything. Thank you. And then hearing cardiac arrest, I'm like, yep, yeah, instant. This is going on. This sounds like something that uh, maybe inspired or influenced my musical taste in 1988. But it also feels like it's the 2000. Like, what a wonderful combination right there. Thank you. Yeah, we're still proud of that music. It's nice to be able to. There's a lot of time when you're trying to do what we're trying to do. And there's a lot of bad songs you write. So it feels mm. nice that from that point forward, when I look back, I'm pretty proud of everything we've done. The producer you were mentioning, he's done three of your four records. Yes. Mm -hmm. So he worked on Apocalypse Whenever. Yes. So as you guys have matured in all ways possible, has the relationship changed with your producer, Eric Palmquist? Or does it still feel like you're the new kids on the block with him? Not the band, but just being new kids. It's a good question. It's, it's progressed, but one of the things that we really like about working with him is, and I think it's good for any producer, is to he feels like a member of the band, and um, we're able to sort of all collaborate in a way that we're, that we're super comfortable with, but at the same time, and especially because we took some time off from working with one another for our third record, Mystic Truth, um, when we got back, there was this kind of fresh energy, and we had both, we're both learning, and we're both getting better as time goes on, and so... Yeah, it feels new and exciting. And this record, it felt like the, the thing that I wanted to be really clear about when we were talking about it was even if we were going to work with Eric again, I didn't want there to be any sort of sense that we were going backwards or trying to go towards something we had done. It needed to feel fresh and like we were moving forward. And so that's something that it's kind of hard to pull off. And a lot of the times, you know, bands might kind of go back to square one or there's like the Back to Basics album. And that wasn't what we were trying to do at all. But, um, you know, it's like if any... If one of the four of us was no longer to be in the band or wasn't playing, it's just different. Like uh, the three of us were playing together with different guitar players for a couple of years, and it never felt right until like the day Ray walked into the room. It was like it's like when you put on a leather jacket and it fits right, and you're like, oh, this is unusual. Yeah. It's like you, they're always like too big or too small. They look whatever. So Ray was kind of our leather jacket. Is it hard for you to not look at streaming numbers and YouTube numbers because? You're going to make an album how you want to make it, and world, here it is. Or do you get consumed with that? It's somewhere in the middle. Like, I have a, I look at those things, um, and I'm happy with where we're at. It's cool. It's just, yes. To me, it's just, it's crazy to see, like, tens of millions of people listening to songs. And, like, we have a song that's about to hit, like, 100 million streams, which is just, like, a comical number to me. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's cool to see that stuff because, but at the same time, it was sort of all we had during the pandemic to kind of gauge people. I prefer, I much prefer rather than looking at that stuff, looking out into a crowd and seeing the faces of a bunch of just stoked kids just singing along. And that to me registers in my brain a lot better. And that's a bit more satisfying is hearing your song being sung back to you. Like that's the real reward, I think, in what we do. Yeah. Oh, if I look at numbers, I'm, I'm snapping. 
It's <laughs> really yeah. It stresses me out for some reason. Just having to ask access to like all the little analytical stuff. I'm like, I can't be looking at that. Right. Or and I'm like, oh, how do we get more streams? Like this streamed more on Tuesday. Why? You know, like <laughs> yeah. I can't. Oh. Apocalypse. Whenever did it feel like an easy album to make? Because sometimes some bands have been in here and like, ah, as we've put out our third and fourth record and get a little older, we tinker way too much now. And the songs are sitting there that I go in the morning, and I change a guitar. What's it like for you? It was a bit both. It was challenging because I think we felt we had a lot to prove with this one. But at the same time, I think we've come to find that the best songs, they, they tend to sort of fall out in a way which feels effortless at the very beginning. This is usually... And then the lyric lyrical process, I like to I write and rewrite, and there's a lot of tinkering. And sometimes sometimes a song will take a day, and sometimes Ooh. a song will take months and months. And uh, I like both processes. But the thing is, I think knowing when the song is done, that's a that's a hard place to get to. And when you're not there yet, like when you still feel like you need to work on some things, uh, that's the difficult part. Was when you're trying to figure out sometimes what that is. But we had the luxury of time making this new album. And uh, we had a lot of fun, and it was really a, a collaborative experience for us. Um, we got to write a lot of really awesome songs together in sort of unconventional ways. Like, there were times mm. to when we had to be, we couldn't be in the studio, so we had to be writing together over, like, video chat, which was surreal. And, like, there were, it's kind of like anything else. There are quite a few eh songs, and then a couple which were amazing that came out of that process. Some of my What's favorite songs. Yeah, go ahead. What do you like? Um, there's two songs. One that we just released called Life Was Easier When I Only Cared About Me was written over a video chat and then another song called Heaven Is A Place In My Head. The lengthy titles on yes. the album. Yeah. yeah. I love I love this, that song you just said right there. Thank you. Heaven Is A Place In My Head. Thank you. Uh, are your parents still flight attendants? They are. Wow. For the same airline? Yes. Do they fly in the same airplanes or do they stay away from each other on that? uh it's happened yeah they've, they've done trips together but mainly two different airplanes so when you were growing up and they were both gone who was it did you have a babysitter were you running the show how did that work it was usually one or the other would be gone but also that was one of the reasons i lived in miami when i was uh until i was about four that's where they were based at the time but my family like on my mom's side they all lived here in the in the valley so that was a reason for us moving to the valley when i was so young. So my grandparents would watch me or, yeah, that kind of a thing. Gavin, uh, I don't need the exact address, but where in the valley did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Calabasas. Oh, you did in Calabasas? Yeah. And then Directly which... across the street from the commons. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, legendary spot. And then you guys went to which high school? Calabasas High School. Calabasas. Okay, for some reason I thought it was Woodland Hills High or somewhere there. You went to Calabasas High, and I'm sure you know some of the hit. There's some good bands from that Incubus, area. Incubus, baby... What's yep. that? Incubus. Yeah, exactly. I, I had the same English teacher as Brandon Boyd. <laughs> My ninth grade math teacher, her uh, sister was married to the guitar player. What's the guy's name? Mike. Mikey Einzinger? Yeah. Yes. Really? Mm -hmm. And she'd always tell me, if you get good grades, I'll try and get you tickets to Incubus. And I was like, wow. And I didn't get good grades. So <laughs> <laughs> never saw Incubus. Have any of your teachers or anyone, yeah, any of the teachers you've had ever reached out on your social media and be like, hey, I was your bio uh, teacher? Mm -mm, not for me. I'd like to think that no one that taught me in school would really remember me. So in a good way, though. So yeah. I, don't had a, I didn't have a close relationship with any personal teachers. But I'm waiting for that. If any teachers are watching this, reach out so I can feel good about myself. But yeah. it has to be spoken about amongst the teachers that, hey, a couple of our students got a record deal early. They played Coachella, played festivals, headline tours. They, it has to be talked about when they're having their coffee and donuts. I wonder. I've kept in touch with a few of my teachers from 
elementary school over like Facebook through the years and they've had kind things to say. So yeah, it's, it's cool. Um, but when you were done with high school and you guys are professionals, what's the living situation at that time? Do you still, do you stay at home and that's where you guys practice or how did that work? Yeah, we lived with our parents until, but also once we started touring, we were gone for a big chunk of the year. Like I think the first year we started touring was 2014 and we were gone for maybe nine out of 12 months or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So we kind of hit the ground running. And by the time things, we started uh, taking some time to record our second album. I think we were, when we were making that album, we were like 2021. And at that point, at the end of the, once we started touring that, it was kind of like, all right, so we need to get, I needed to get out of my parents' house. I was starting to feel a little bit like it was, it was time to leave the nest. And what we did was we all, did what any band should do that's with each other for <laughs> nine out of 12 months of the year. And we spent those other three months living together in a house. We got a house in the valley no. um, down the street from our parents' place. And then, <laughs> and it was a, it was, it was actually a really fun time. It was a fun chapter in our lives. And is that before disappearing here came out? That was after we released it and sort of while we were touring it, we were living together as we were writing mystic truth. Wow. House. Was it a four-bedroom house, three-bedroom house? Four-bedroom house. Okay, yeah. so everybody had their own bedroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where's this? Uh, I'm, I'm so curious about this stuff when bands say they live together. Do you guys have a similar sleeping schedule where, okay, we're all going to bed at 2 or 3 a.m., or which means you get up at a similar time, or someone up till 5 and someone goes to bed at 11? I think it was more like that. We were all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Like, we didn't have, like, all right, guys, good night, see you in the morning, and we're all, like, cuddled up at the same time, but... All in different schedules. We would just jam during the day when everyone was up and, you know, had coffee and food and felt like it. But it was fun. What do you guys attribute your not only longevity to but being and putting out four albums, but those that found you when the first record came out are not only, like, still checking you out, but buying the tickets and going and supporting? It's, I, I, I wish, I don't know if I have the answer to that. I think that we just, you know, it's like when we talked about, like, you know, hit songs like the thing for us is we're never really chasing those metrics or those statistics but with any song of ours that's really resonated with people that the thing for me is they have to cross cross some things off the list and the thing the box they all check is they all come from a really real place and they're all really um yeah they, they came from a real place and they're all very inspired and they're songs that we loved and when we were making them and when they were arriving or falling out it was like we knew there was something special happening so that's the thing that we chase and i think you know whether a song goes up the charts or in the middle of the charts or off the charts as long as it's still f- comes that same way that's the thing that really matters and yeah. uh maybe there's something about that that resonates with people or that people resonate with it's uh it's a a very fortunate position we're in, and I think that absolutely we thank the fans. I mean, because there are some groups, and everybody knows who they are. You could probably list five right now, where your band and that band put out an album, first album, same year, and maybe that year they played to however many millions of people. But now, no one knows where they are. No one knows where they are or what they're doing. And here you are with really great songs on the new record, Apocalypse Whenever. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's been kind of a trip. Like that was something that we paid attention to when we were doing the circuits back in the early days, the festival circuits. Yeah. There are a lot of bands that have stuck around and are still making music and there are buddies of ours that we love and we're stoked that we're both still doing it. And then there's some bands that you just kinda never hear from again and you know, it's unfortunate. But hey, 
we're still here. So yeah. that's what matters. Absolutely. Us. Gavin, I'm going to throw some things at you guys that I'm curious about, and it's the business side of it. Mm -hmm. And you're with Epitaph Records, we this are. album, Epitaph, the last one as well. Mm -hmm. Is it hard for your band, any band, but you speak for yourself here, to navigate the, the business? Yeah. It I is. think I personally have no idea how a younger artist would make it in music today. And I think, like, just because there are so many different ways to get exposure, whether it's a labels or not, um, I think our experience with Epitaph has been really nice. And it's um, it was tricky for us to find a, you know, home for, like, the kind of music that we do make because it's uh, alternative rock, but it's not fully, like, you know, it's not punk. It's not, uh, right. like avant-garde or anything it's not fully pop either so like finding that home was really difficult but we've been really happy with it and i think we get a lot of love from over there and have great relationships with the people that work there and but from that <laughs> navigating the music business i is something that i'm like ooh, I no idea how that works yeah, between Vagrant Records and Epitaph Records, like our North Star has kind of just been like, we won't sign to your company unless Alkaline Trio has put out a record <laughs> on your thing. So that's yeah. kind of all the, that's all I look for. <laughs> that's not you right there. <laughs> Did you, um, when you sign with Epitaph, do you meet with Brett? Is it like two hours of meetings? Are there other people? How does, how does that work? There's a bunch of lovely people over there. Chris Foytel, Matt McGreevy, Jason Link. Brett Gerwitz, Legend, so many more that I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna stop naming them now so I don't forget one or the other. But it's a yeah, it's it's pretty trippy. Like when we were younger, we were playing in like straight up punk bands or so it was a dream of mine since we were in high school to be on Epitaph Records. And then when we started making like the type of music that you hear on our first record, um, and then circle back once it happened, it was sort of like whoa, this full circle thing that kind of happened. Like I remember probably like I would like tweet at their Twitter and stuff, be like, listen to our songs or whatever. And then mm -hmm. all these years later, we're like sitting in the room and it's Brett Gerowitz, another uh, Valley Woodland Hills legend. We like yeah. grew up in the same neighborhood pretty much. So yeah, it feels really cool. We were both in the two best bands from the Valley with the word bad <laughs> in there. <laughs> bad religion, bad sons. There yeah, we go. Maybe. Yeah. So it, it's, yeah, it's really cool. I think there's a lot of um, probably disgruntled Epitaph fans from like the nineties or whatever. <laughs> no. Who probably our video be surprised. <laughs> our video pops up on their feed, like, what's this shit? Whatever. It's like but you know, it's cool. We like we like being sort of out of place. I think it's cool not totally fitting in. A hundred percent. And um the label Epitaph, they are signing bands that aren't a stereotypical punk band as the years are going. They would be stupid not to. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Brett has always been a forward thinker and a business guy. And so, yeah, it's 100% the right moves. And I'm glad you're with them. Me too. All right. Can we discuss the project that I did with you the other day? Yeah, let's talk about it. At the studio? <laughs> let's talk about it. Okay. Um, as we're sitting here right now, it's not available for people to watch. But I think as you're watching, it is going to be available. What the hell did I do? What is that? What didn't you do? There was a, there was a lot going on in that. We just kind of had this idea. We wanted to promote our album in a way that we hadn't done before, and as opposed to just like making another music video, we thought, well, what, why don't we just promote the whole thing and make a video that we want to come back to and watch again? And wouldn't it be funny if we bought some uh, local airtime on like public access TV and ran this thing? And so that's kind of where the idea stemmed from. Was we wanted to make this like bizarro uh, alternate universe television network in which every single channel is trying to sell you our album. <laughs> yes, that was the idea. 
And I'm on there as the host of the infomercial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of the over the top, hey, come to blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you did Nailed a great it job. Too. You did a great job. You've seen some of the footage? I haven't seen I'm the footage. I'm so nervous that I ruined Apocalypse Whenever and the rollout of the album. Not even by close. My performance. Just watching it, we were like, oh, this is perfect. This is exactly what we wanted. Yeah, it was yeah. amazing. What, looking over the. Uh, cameraman's shoulder I was just very pleased and I got to watch it on the screen and it looked amazing I'm yeah. very excited oh good yeah good all right oh my god <laughs> wow that was a fun day I'm very nervous uh, about that all right so <laughs> you guys are hitting the road the new album is out everybody's getting along pretty well in the band yeah of course yep we've we, been uh, friends for a long time and I think that's like you know friendship like a band where we're actually friends like we didn't really meet each other to like specifically like oh let's you know play in a band and i don't really like you but it's all good and so i mean we didn't meet in like the classifieds kind of a thing which is you know it's uh it's been a benefit to us and also we're like four guys and so sometimes guys have a hard harder time like communicating with each other that like for instance like i see the way that my girlfriend and her friends all talk to each other and how much they talk to each other and i'm like how do you like it? Just it's so far. I'm like, I wish we just have a harder time doing that. But I think that being uh, being in a band for as long as we have, and like the amount of love and respect we have for each other, it's like we just kind of work on these things. And you know, we we get in fights and we get into arguments, but it's always like we're always coming from a place of love. So it's like it, we, you know, it's we're we're figuring it out, and we're just, it's like it's fun to have to grow with people who you really. Uh, love and appreciate and I've seen so many people talk about it and I really think being in a band in a weird way is like being in a marriage or a relationship to where it's like things will come up everyone's growing and learning individually because we're not just one unit and if things are we're hitting issues we really have to work on them or else it's gonna like that kind of stuff tears apart bands tears apart the relationships so it's like always trying to like make our relationship between the four of us, the best it can be, so we can like continue to make music and not like be like, oh, I'm out of here, I quit. Yeah, and you've seen a lot of bands do that. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it's and it's unfortunate, and uh, it's one of those things that we never, you know, you never want to see happen to yourself. Um, and well, it depends, but for us, it's like I don't think any of us could picture ourselves doing anything else because, like I said, I think we find ourselves to be in this incredibly fortunate position where we get to make music and people yeah. want to listen to it and sing along and. And we get to do it with our best friends, so it's it's rad. You want to do whatever you can to preserve that. However many awkward conversations or like things you need to do or like things you have to work on, all that stuff. It's like it's like a marriage, you know. If you want to sustain it, you got to do the dirty work. The visuals, aesthetic, and the sound of your band from day one up until this point are so appealing in every single way. You mentioned earlier how much you loved Blink and you love their videos, and you wanted to tour the world because of that and that sort of thing, and it would be so fun in a band. Yet the style of music is not really a Blink-182 style. Why does the music fly off your instruments and the words out of your mouth in the way it does? That's an interesting point. I mean, I think it's, uh, I think the thing, if anything from Blink really stuck with us, even though we're like, we make totally different kinds of music. It was just the the melodies always really resonated with us Mm -hmm. and the songwriting at its very core. Um, you know, they wrote such catchy songs, and that was what really got into our ears. And from them, as a jumping-off point, they did that self-titled record, which featured a song with Robert Smith of The Cure, which kind of crossed a lot of bridges for us. And uh, we actually had the pleasure very recently. We were on tour with Angels and Airwaves, and um, Tom DeLong was just the coolest guy in the world. And he'd come into our dressing room and just kind of share all these stories, and he told us about his time and funny stories about them playing with Robert Smith and recording together and all this stuff. And it was just, it was so cool because 
like like uh, just to sidetrack for a second, I'll get back no, please, to the point. Please, please. But what was so special about that was like he was talking about this times with like, you know, Dave Gaughan of Depeche Mode and Robert Smith of The Cure and all, all the different opportunities he's had to like be with his heroes and his musical heroes and all that stuff and being able to talk to them. And you could just see in his eyes like how much those things meant to us. And like for him to be sharing that with us who looked at him in that same way, that was super cool for us. And I think that he... I think he like got that and knew how cool and special it was and, and like he wanted to share that with us and that was so badass. They say you shouldn't That's meet your heroes, so cool. but that doesn't apply to Tom DeLonge, coolest guy in the world. Wow, and that tour, because Tom was on this podcast, he sat in that chair right there, he came over, he rode his motorcycle here, and it was the day before that that tour was starting. Okay. And so of course I was watching all the Instagram and everything. That tour looked so fun and there were so many people out on that. That was a great tour. Uh, amazing yeah we'll never forget that one it felt like just the best summer camp of all time wait so have you you've met robert smith then no. we haven't you met have him not no mm, okay love to robert if you're out there uh actually i don't know that i feel like i might be too too scared too intimidated but no i, I really want to but that seems like a perfect fit or dave from depeche Mode. like you guys awesome. getting in a room together and creating a couple songs why can that not happen that'd be oh. sick yeah that but yeah be good there's some kind of like and also the fact that uh, Thomas and Blink were so influenced by those bands to bring it back to where we started. It's like, but you don't really hear that. But we kind of, we sort of melded all these things together. And for whatever reason, I think because of the music that our parents grew up listening to, a lot of the 80s new wave stuff, like The Cure, Depeche Mode, The Smiths, I could go on and on, The Police, uh, Elvis Costello and The Attractions. It yes. was just, um, we found those same, those that uh, melodic sensibility that Robert Smith has in The Cure to me, it resonated with me right away. So the first time I heard it, I was like, this is amazing. And uh, as we started playing music, uh, rather than, I don't know, that sort of palette of music, musically just felt really interesting and inspiring to us. And like you said, we're kids born in the 90s who are, for some reason, infatuated with music of the 80s because all that stuff still was being played on the radio when we were coming up. So like you would hear Third Eye Blind and you'd hear Sugar Ray and all yeah. these other great songs. But then you'd still, you'd hear, you know, like I'll stop the world and melt with you, or you'll you'd hear, uh, all, you know, Friday I'm in love. Friday I'm in love. Lullaby. Lullaby. Yeah. yeah personal Jesus. Yeah. Um, all these incredible songs. Tainted love. Last rumors. Yeah. Yep. Uh, all yeah. So that stuff always kind of had it does it does have this nostalgic element for us too because we still grew up listening to that music even though we weren't necessarily alive when it was being made. Yeah, and I think definitely, like, finding our space as a band, like, listening to all the recordings from those times, like, every record that you were listening to is, like, it's wildly experimental with the actual recordings of it, all the sounds and, like, the arrangements of all that stuff, and I think, like, as a group, it's really inspiring to go back and listening to how, how listen to, like, how you can, like, add all of these influences and different sounds into your recordings, like, specifically from that time, because it's, like rock bands from the 90s I feel like way more straightforward there's not all, all these crazy sounds happening and that's in a way a weird way to make our band more like modern almost yeah. you know what I mean yeah because like if you were to like say take uh close to me by the cure and re-record it now it would still be like a really interesting For modern sure. sounding record yes. you know and so that's just it seems like the natural thing for us to like really want to hone in on it's just like those uh, I don't know it's so tricky for me to talk about but Kristen I know oh man we're almost 40 minutes in was it tough for you ever early on to get on stage and sing in front of people 
You know, I mean, yes and no. For some reason, I had this sort of, like, arrogance that I should go up there and people should listen to the songs I was writing, you know, which is, of course, I'm sure it was horrible, especially at the very beginning. But I think you need to have a little bit of that sort of insanity or delusion in order to do uh, what it is that I do, uh, what it is that we do. I think some of that, like, just the right amount can be helpful in getting you on that stage, but you don't want it to go past a certain point to where, you know, you don't want to be an asshole, essentially. But... uh yeah, there's, I don't know. So there was always that. I, I just love doing it so much. And now it's nice that I get to do it and there's like people there as opposed to like a few people there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely a lot of people there. It started off with this record, yes. Language and Perspective. Then we went. Is this Disappear Here? Then yes. we went Disappear Here. And we had Mystic Truth. And now out right now is Apocalypse Whenever. Bad Sons, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank thank you. you for having us. Thank you for having us. A lot us. of fun, man. Oh God, this was uh, this was really fun. I'm glad I got to learn so much about you guys, and because I wasn't sure, I kind of knew a couple stories, but I didn't know 100. percent So that was rad. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having a lot us. Of fun. Yeah, it was great talking with you. All right, find them on the road. Do a deep dive into their music if you are brand new to Bad Sons. For the guys right next to me, I am Ted Stryker. Happy Snuggles. Bye bye. Awesome. That was super fun. That was guys, fun. thank you. That's another episode of Strikers Tuna on Toast. Promise it'll get better. Most likely. For sure. <laughs> <laughs>